very, very sincere welcome and appreciation for all who have taken time to come this evening. Before we turn to our section for tonight, it was brought to my attention that there was one glaring omission from last night. So just turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just for uh, just one thing to clarify, and then we'll get into tonight's message. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I don't like to go back, but significant enough, I guess, that we should. Look at verse number 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, just a, a clarification of what that means for the sake of younger believers. Perhaps uh, you've had a bad week or you've uh, had difficulty at school, difficulty at home, maybe spousal problem, and you feel, uh, I'm so unworthy to partake of the emblems this Sunday, or perhaps if you're a man, you would feel, I really shouldn't be taking part. I really am unworthy of taking part because it says there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that if you partake unworthily, you're bringing judgment, you're bringing chastening upon yourself. That's not what the verse means. There's not one of us here who is worthy to partake of the bread and the wine. It's not a matter of our merit. It's a matter of our manner. They were partaking of the emblems, viewing it just as another meal. That's what he's getting at in First Corinthians. They were there. They were having a feast. Some were getting drunk. They were bringing lots of food and shaming those that had nothing. And he says, you're, you're, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. You're, you don't really recognize what you're doing. So that when it comes to the privilege of partaking of the animal, I'm not trying to minimize the need for personal righteousness, but we're not looking here that I've had a bad week, I better not partake or I better not take part in the meeting. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with understanding that what I am doing when I partake of the emblems is to identify with the body and with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than having to do with my worthiness. It's not worthiness, it's an unworthy manner that's being looked at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So with that out of the way, I ask you to turn just to one verse in the Old Testament for a moment, back in Exodus and chapter number 34. Just for the sake of background, Moses has asked God to show him his glory, and we'll just pick up at verse number 5 of chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the glory of God is seen in the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. It is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. Now just file that in the back of your mind, and we're going to come now to 1 Timothy and chapter number 2. First Timothy chapter number 2, and we'll take time to read the entire chapter. It's a very short chapter, so it will not take us very long. 1 Timothy 2, verse number 1, I exhort... Therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, or the word there is desires all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. 
a teacher of Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now we do trust that God will add his blessing to our public reading of his very precious word. We could certainly very profitably look at the general subject of prayer, considering the principle of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the pattern of prayer, the practice of prayer, the paradox of prayer, the proportion of prayer, all of that, the need for perseverance, all of that could well be looked at. But what I want to look at especially this evening is the assembly prayer meeting and consider with you not the necessity for prayer. We would all be agreed that it is very, very necessary that we be a praying people. In fact, I think most of us would have to confess that we, we don't pray as much as we ought to or as well as we ought to. Prayer is probably the most spiritual exercise that we engage in. You can spend or I could spend an hour or two studying my Bible, all your helps and concordances and Bible programs, and you can spend a couple of hours studying your Bible. You can do that relatively, I don't want to say easily, but you can do it. But to spend an hour in prayer and to actually spend an hour praying without your mind wandering in 20 directions is a very, very difficult exercise because the more spiritual the exercise, the more difficult it is to maintain focus and to avoid all the intrusions of the flesh that, that come upon us. But what we want to look at then is not just the necessity that we need to be a praying people, but the necessities. What is necessary if we are going to, as an assembly, have effective prayer? Now, 1 Timothy, like 1 Corinthians, is primarily what we would call a church epistle. While it is written to an individual, written to Timothy, Timothy was at Ephesus, at the church at Ephesus, the assembly at Ephesus, and Paul was writing to him relative to different things in the assembly that had to be dealt with and had to be maintained. Chapter 1, he speaks there about instructions that are going to further the house of God. He speaks there of godly administration, household administration. Again, the background of 1 Timothy is house of God conditions. And so in chapter number one, not in our authorized version, but in the original version, he speaks about godly edifying or household administration. So chapter one is all about furthering, instructions for furthering the house. When you come to chapter number three, it's not so much the instructions for furthering the house, but the individuals who function in the house. So he'll speak about elders and he'll speak about deacons, those who are functioning in the house, and he will key on the individuals in chapter number three. When you come to chapter number four, he's dealing now with a man and his fruitfulness, and there are imperatives for fruitfulness in the house of God. In chapter five, where he deals with care for widows and care for the poor and care for judgment against elders, he's dealing there with importance for being fair. One of the strongest, one of the strongest and most solemn of charges he gives in chapter 5, I charge thee in the sight of God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that you do these things without partiality. Very strong charge for fairness in the house of God. And in chapter 6, it's incentives for faithfulness with material things, especially in the house of God. But in chapter 2, where we're looking at today, it's intercession and the fragrance that is going to fill the house. So chapter 2 then is about the assembly prayer meeting. So a few things then, necessities, things that we need to know if we are going to pray and pray effectively. For some who have come in late, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and considering the necessities for prayer. 
First thing we have to know is God's command to pray. God's command to pray. Now there are three, I'll use the expression, three venues, if you will, for prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about closet prayer, going into your closet, closing the door, and your Father who sees in secret will answer openly. Now, we don't have closets, or we do have closets, but uh, few of us go into a closet. But the idea of a closet is the idea of shutting everything else out and shutting yourself in with God. So that's individual prayer, shutting everything else out and being alone in the presence of God and spending time in prayer, closet prayer. We're looking now at collective prayer, the assembly coming together as a unit to pray and to call upon God for its needs. There is collective prayer. And the third form of prayer is what I call crisis prayer. And of course you have that, don't you, with Nehemiah especially and some others. Didn't have time to get alone with God, didn't have time to call for a prayer meeting, but in the heat of the moment, faced with decision, faced with problems, they just lift their hearts to God in a moment of intercession, calling upon God for the help right at that moment in time. It's the kind of prayer you make when you're driving on the parkway or going into New York City, you know, and every, you know, crisis prayer. And uh, so we have collective prayer, we have closet prayer, and we have crisis prayer. We're looking here tonight at what I call collective prayer. Now, a very, very good question to ask. Why bother? I mean, why don't we all stay home? We, instead of the time spent traveling to get here and to get home, we could use that time to pray. And instead of all the money on gas or tolls or everything else, I mean, we would be much more financially efficient and much more efficient in our time management if instead of everybody coming together and praying, we all stayed home and prayed. So why the, what's the value of a prayer meeting? Let me take you back to the Old Testament for something for just a moment. You can look at it later in Deuteronomy 33. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses says to the people, if God had not been with you, how could one chase a thousand and two chase, not 2,000, but two chase 10,000? Now you do the math. One man chasing a thousand and two men chasing 10,000. What are you learning? We're, we're learning that there is a tremendous value to collective activity. That the, the whole, to use a common expression, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If we were just being mathematical, we would say one man would chase a thousand and two men would chase two thousand. But, but Moses says through God that two men together, combining their efforts together, could chase ten thousand. So that in collective activity, there is more than just the individual parts put together. So there's a tremendous value in collective prayer. But if nothing else, we're commanded here for the assembly to gather together and to pray. So we'll see that as we look at the section that is before us. Collective prayer has tremendous value. And we scarcely appreciate the importance of it. There's an incident that's told about a, a town in the south that had been a, a dry town, meaning no alcohol was allowed or, or no alcohol was sold in the town. And uh, a man came in, and he built a bar, a tavern. And the little church, the little congregational church, uh, very fundamental church, was very concerned. And they had a prayer meeting that God would intervene and do something so the, uh, the bar would go out of business. Shortly thereafter, there was a terrible thunderstorm, and lightning hit the bar, and the bar burned to the ground. The bar owner actually got a lawyer and took the church to court. And he sued them for the fact that they caused his bar to burn down. And of course, the little congregation had to get a lawyer. And after they presented their opening arguments, the uh, bar owner claiming that the church was responsible for the, for, the, for the bar burning down and the church claiming they weren't responsible, the presiding judge says, I don't know how this case is going to end in the end. But I do know this, the bartender believes in prayer more than you people believe in prayer. We pray and we, we'd be amazed, we're surprised sometimes if God answers. 
but uh, the value of collective prayer is hard to overestimate. So you'll notice, first of all here, in this call to pray that comes through the apostle to the assembly, number one, it's a priority. First of all, first of all. Now, I know that we think of the breaking of bread as the most important meeting of the week, but you'd be hard-pressed to prove that in Scripture. Paul says, before I deal with anything else, before I deal with elders and deacons and deal with gift and development of gift and deal with taking part in the meetings, deal with caring for the widows, deal with accusations against elders, deal with how you deal with money, before anything else, first of all, I want to talk about prayer. And I want to talk about your prayer meeting. So he puts a tremendous value on the prayer meeting of the assembly. The priority of collective prayer. It's obvious as we go down this chapter that the Spirit of God expected both genders to be present. Sometimes I don't know anything about Midland Park. I do know of other places where I've heard that most of the sisters stay home because it's the prayer meeting. Well, we're going to see that sisters play a tremendous role in an assembly prayer meeting. And that's not, just, that's not just lip service to keep our sisters happy. It's right here in the Word of God, the value of sisters being present at a prayer meeting. So he makes it very clear that, first of all, prayer. You'll notice that as he speaks of it, he is impressing the believers here with the fact that there is tremendous value globally to an assembly praying locally. When you come to a prayer meeting, come with a burden and come and be brief. Come and be brief. I should have mentioned that last night when it comes to the breaking of bread as well. Um, maybe I, I, I probably have adult ADHD. <laughs> Because I cannot, someone prays for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, I'm, uh, I'm off somewhere. I, I can't follow them. And uh, just brevity is tremendous, tremendous value to brevity. The longest prayer in the Bible, the longest prayer in the Bible, if said out loud, is the prayer of Solomon, which takes about seven minutes to say. So the next time someone prays longer than seven minutes, you can say, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Okay? That's how long he prayed. Seven minutes. Start to finish. So brevity has tremendous... And, and praying specifically for things to the point, as we'll see in a few moments. So the first thing then is knowing the call or God's command to pray. The second thing I need to know is the character of God. Now, I read that for you in the Old Testament from the book of, of Exodus, where Moses says, show me thy glory, and God makes his name to pass before Moses and declares that lovely, full expression of all God is the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, long-suffering, pardoning, and so on. And the reason I read that is this. As soon as God revealed himself to Moses... Moses turns around and uses what God revealed to pray. You're a pardoning God? Okay, pardon our sin and go with us. So I want to talk to you then about knowing the character of God and using it for the sake of prayer. Now look, some of you will know what I mean. You know, you're, you're given an assignment in school to write a, I don't know if they still do it, you know, write a term paper, 2,000 words. And so you start looking for synonyms to, uh, to fill the, to kind of pad it out, to make sure you get to the 2,000 words. Spirit of God doesn't use, look for words just to pad things out. So when he speaks about prayer, intercession, giving of thanks, and supplications, he's giving us a key to four different kinds of, four different aspects of prayer, four different things. So that as I come to it, when I think about supplications, why would I supplicate God if he were not the God who is sufficient? Why would I intercede, that means to uh, ask for someone else, if he isn't the God who is sovereign? Why would I pray if he is not the God who is sacred? Why would I give thanks if he is not the God who satisfies? 
So you, I, I, as I appreciate God as being sufficient for everything, I can come to him with everything. As I appreciate God as being sovereign and in absolute control, I can intercede on behalf of other people. I can come to him and ask him for those who are not saved, for those who are ill, for those who have needs, and especially for the spiritual welfare of other believers. I can intercede because he is sovereign and can do what I cannot do. And I come in prayer, which is a general word that really implies both worship, but it suggests coming to one who is sacred, one who is able and worthy of my prayer and my attention. And I give him thanks because he is the God who satisfies. So when you think about a God of sufficiency, you're thinking about his grace. When you think about a God of sacredness, you're thinking about his glory. When you're thinking about a God who is sovereign, you're thinking about his greatness. When you're thinking about a God who satisfies, thinking about his goodness. So what am I saying? I guess what I'm getting around to saying is this. The better I know God, the better I'll pray. Follow what I'm saying? The better I know what God is like, the better I will pray. So one tremendous reason for reading this book, getting to know your God, is to be able to pray more effectively. To learn his character, to learn his heart. We're seeing it right here in this very section. We are learning what is in the heart the deepest heart wish of God, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That there is no limit to God's desire for humanity to be saved. That there's no special group that has an inside track on salvation that God is interested in and he neglects others. We are looking here in this very chapter at the very heart wish of the God of eternity. His heart is open to us. And as we go through the word of God and learn more and more of what God is like, it changes how we pray. So that my prayer life reveals what I know of God. And the more I know of God, the more it changes my prayer life. Now we read those words in Deuteronomy 34. God's revelation to Moses. We don't have the time to do it. But you go through the Old Testament. Book of Nehemiah, book of Daniel, the book of Jonah, the book of Joel, the book of Nahum, several of the Psalms. You know what they do? They draw upon that revelation that God gave to Moses and they use it for prayer. It becomes the basis of their prayer. And so on occasions, Daniel speaks of a God who is, who is merciful and long-suffering Ezra speaks of a God who, who grants mercy and, and long-suffering and pardon and recovery. And you go through the word of God and even Jonah complains. Didn't I know that you're a God who is long-suffering and merciful and that you wouldn't judge them if they repented? And so the revelation given affected the prayer life of generations to come. How much do I know of God and how much does it affect our assembly prayer meeting? How much of God do I bring into an assembly prayer meeting that actually carries with it tremendous fragrance and worth. And so we're reminded here then of knowing the, the character of God. And I don't think that there are four different prayers that somebody gets up and makes intercession, someone gets up and makes supplication, someone, I think really it should be part of every prayer, giving of thanks, Every prayer marked by giving of thanks, marked by supplications, marked by intercessions, all of that being part of our exercise in prayer as an assembly. So knowing the command to pray, knowing the character of God, but then knowing the concerns of God. We are here to call upon God, not to, not to persuade God to change his mind. We are here to work together with God. Now, this brings us to the great... I can say problem, the great paradox of prayer. If you're, a, if, you're a partly, if you're a part Calvinist, you would say, since everything is determined and God is going to carry out his purposes, what value is there in prayer? I mean, why pray? If everything is going to be, why pray? Well, of course, what we learn is God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means. And he chooses to use our prayers as a fulcrum 
to accomplish his purposes. So mixed into this grand design of God for his purpose for the ages is the prayers of believers, which he uses to further and to move along his purposes to their ultimate end. So learning the concerns of God for prayer. Now we have one of them right here, that God desires all men everywhere to be saved. The unquestioned desire of God. Now, Paul quickly adds, for there is one God. Now you may say, what's the significance of that? Many of the people here in the assembly at Ephesus, go back to Acts chapter 20, go back to the, the beginning of the assembly at Ephesus. Many of the people at Ephesus had been idol worshipers. Part of their pantheon of deities would include gods who would be opposed to one to the other. And uh, you would be constantly playing God against God. And you'd be wondering, uh, which God really do you need to pray to this week? And which God do you have to make sure is on your side? Uh, the God of rain if it's drought? The God of harvest? The God of sunshine? You would constantly be trying to figure out which God to, to work with. Paul says there's only one God. And because there's only one God, there's only one will for all of humanity. No need to worry about opposing points of view. No need to worry about opposing deities that might have some other plans for the human race. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, himself man, Christ. So we have the unquestioned desire of God and the unique will of God. And of course, very practically, how will I get to know God's concerns? How will I get to know God's will? It's through this book. It's the only way. It doesn't come in dreams. In fact, uh, I was just, just heard, uh, just, this was just uh, recounted to me. Martin Luther said he made, a, he made a covenant with God. His covenant with God was that God would not speak to him through dreams, through visions, through prophets, that he wanted God just to speak to him through his word. That's all he wanted, and that's all he needed. And that's how God still speaks. That's how we learn what God's interests are in 21st century Western world, or 21st century world. We learn it through this book, what God's concerns and what God's interests are. But I learn as I read it that it just doesn't say this is, the, there, there are occasions where it says this is the will of God. But for the most part, I see how God is working. Now let me just take you quickly and this could consume an entire meeting, but we'll just mention these and pass on from them. If you just look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul and just limit it to the four prison epistles that he wrote, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. There are two prison prayers in Ephesians. There's one prison prayer in Philippians, one prison prayer in Colossians. and I don't think you could take what he has in Philemon as a prison prayer. but So we're just going to talk about four prison prayers. In Ephesians chapter 1, he is there seen praying for the believers to be enlightened, that they might know the riches of the inheritance. So in Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for the believers to be enlightened as to the, all their spiritual wealth. In chapter 3... He is praying that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. They may be able to comprehend with all saints the, the length and breadth and depth and height and to, to know the love of Christ. So in chapter 3, he's praying for enablement to enjoy spiritual truth. When you come to Philippians chapter 1, you recall there that he is praying for their enrichment. And when you come to Colossians chapter 1, he speaks about them walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, strengthened with all might, according to the power of his glory, unto all long-suffering with joyfulness. So he's praying there for empowerment. Now just look for just a moment. He's praying for enlightenment. He's praying for enablement. He's praying for enrichment. He's praying for empowerment. What I come away with is this. He doesn't pray about so-and-so's 
heart condition. He doesn't pray about so-and-so's hospital stay. Paul is vitally concerned with the spiritual welfare of the people of God. Now, there is nothing wrong. Don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong. It's a matter of proportion. When the Lord Jesus Christ gave his model prayer, if you want to call it that, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespass. Lead us not into the temptation. There's a study in proportion. First of all, three things about God. Three things about myself. Three more things about God. So the first proportion I learn is, it's more about God than about myself. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth that is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So at both ends, he waits his prayer with desires for God's will and God's glory. Now in the middle, three requests for self. But notice that one of them has to do with physical needs. Two of them have to do with spiritual needs. So again, proportion. He's praying mostly for spiritual need rather than just for material needs. Now just take that template and put it against most of our prayer life. And my own prayer life. We, we, we pray and wait our prayers more towards the, the physical needs of believers and the, uh, the temporary problems rather than actually praying for each other to, to grow spiritually, to have a greater appreciation for Christ, to have a greater appreciation for the Word of God, to, to appreciate more and to live more in the good of all that Christ has brought us into. His prayers were intensely spiritual. Now, please, don't, I, I hope you don't leave thinking I am suggesting that uh, we, we stop praying for believers going through trial, believers going through illnesses, believers who are in hospital. I'm not suggesting that at all. I am just pointing out the proportion that is seen in the prayer life of the Lord Jesus, in the prayer life of the Apostle Paul, is always more on the spiritual than on the material and on the physical. So we are reminded here of the unquestioned desire of God, the unique will of God, but notice it's all based upon the unlimited work of Christ. Unlimited work of Christ. Now he's here speaking about people being saved. So you'll understand the special relevance. Why can we pray for all men? Because the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all. That's why we can do it. But I am reminded of something deeper, and it's just this. The basis, the value of any prayer is based upon all that Christ is and has done. We never can come and think that our merit, that, that our lives merit answers to prayer. As we'll see in a few moments, the best I can do by a righteous life is not to hinder prayer but I can never merit prayer. We always stand on the ground of mercy, not of merit. We can never merit. You never can make a contract with God that as long as I come to all the meetings and bring my family to all the meetings, they'll all get saved and go on and be wonderful Christians. Or as long as I refuse that big promotion at work that's going to take me away somewhere where there's no assembly, God is going to give me a nice big raise right here where I am doesn't always work that way. You can't make God sign a contract with you that so much faithfulness will get so much answers to prayer. It doesn't work that way. Some of the most godly and spiritual and consistent of believers have known the greatest trials in family life, in business life, in personal life. God doesn't sign contracts with us. We never can obligate God to answer prayer. We come and we come on the basis and on the ground alone of mercy because of all that Christ is and all that Christ has, has done. So we are reminded here then of knowing the command to pray, knowing the character of God in prayer, knowing as well the concerns of God that we pray, things for which we pray. 
But the key thing he is coming to here is knowing the need for consistency in our lives. Three areas he's going to deal with here in these verses. He's going to deal with our actions. He's going to deal with our attitudes. And he's going to deal with our attire. And these are things that I think are important to see. Now, just so there's no misunderstanding, first of all, he begins with actions. He speaks to, and I should mention this, look back at verse number 1. You'll notice that the last word in the chapter is men. You'll notice in verse number 4, the word is men. You'll notice in verse number 5, the word is men. You'll notice that when you come to verse number Eight, the word is men. The difference is it's a different word. The word in the first three occurrences is the word for humanity, humankind, if you will. When it comes to verse number eight, he changes and uses the word for males. Males. So now he's going to make a differentiation between men and women in the assembly. And he says, if the men pray, I want them to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So what is he saying? Well, go back to what he's told them to pray for. They are praying and they are showing by their prayer for the authorities that they are not rebellious, that they are not plotting sedition, that they are not doing anything to undermine the government. And the result of that will be they'll be left alone to lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now he says, if that's the goal of what you're praying for, and he says you're at war among yourselves. He says, how can you be at war among yourselves with, with wrath, one towards another? You've got hard feelings towards each other. And you're, uh, you're, you're, you're at war with each other. And yet you're getting up and you're praying with the end in view that God will give you peaceable conditions in the world. He says, that's inconsistent. He says, if you are going to pray for others and, and you want to lead a quiet and peaceable life, he says, make sure that there's peace in the assembly. Make sure assembly conditions are consistent with what you're praying for. And so he reminds them here, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And uh, as far as holy hands... Now, if you want to lift up your hands in a prayer meeting, that's fine. Some people take this literally. But I think the stress here is not on lifting up your hands, but on holy hands. Now, he says, if you are praying for unsaved men to turn from sin and to turn to Christ, and your hands are dabbling in sin, that's a bit inconsistent. You, you're, you're, you're saying one thing and doing something else. He says, that's totally inconsistent with what you're asking God to do. He says, make sure that if you are going to get up and pray. Now, I shouldn't say just get up and pray. This really refers to people who are sitting, even if you're not getting up and praying. Remember, whoever's speaking in the assembly is the mouthpiece. They're representing the entire assembly in the presence of God. So these standards are not just for those that take part publicly, but for everyone. All of the men should have hands that are marked by holiness. No secret sins. No double-clicking on questionable sites. No, uh, no habits that you'd be ashamed to have others know about. Just make sure there are hands that are holy, clean hands. Psalm 24, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands. I will wash mine hands in innocence, so will I compass thine altar. Psalm 26. Clean hands. Vital in the assembly to be marked by clean hands. But then he says as well, or rather what he is saying here is this. And I hope this is an encouragement, not a discouragement. Virtue of character is more important than vocabulary. Virtue of character is more important in your prayer life than a vocabulary that strings words out endlessly. God is looking for the heart. Clean hands. But uh, not only is there a need for consistency in my actions, 
but consistency in attitudes as well. Now he says, you are, uh, you're praying for others to submit to the uh, word of God. You're praying for kings, for all that are in authority, praying for all men, really, to submit themselves to the authority of God's word. Now he says, uh, what about the authority being recognized in the assembly? The, 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 I don't want a woman to have authority over a man. I want authority maintained as, as I outlined it, as I instituted it in the Garden of Eden. He says, I want to see the right attitude on the part of believers. I want to see your attitude right because you're praying for others to, to change, to repent in their attitude and to submit to the word of God and to, and to bow to it. Why are sisters in this section? Why are they commanded to be in silence? Someone says, well, they're being punished because Eve was the one who led in sin and because she was the one who, who took and, uh, and gave them to her husband, she's being punished and she's got to be silent. With all due respects to the season, humbug. That's not what it means. What it means is simply this. Adam was first formed, then Eve. Going back to the garden, I gave leadership. I gave headship to the man. And I created the woman to be a helpmeet for the man. Now he said, that was the order I, in I, I intended. I intended headship and leadership in the man and a woman to be a help. Now he said, in the garden, roles were reversed. Eve took the lead. Adam followed. And the result was disaster. Now he says, in the assembly, I want those roles to be maintained. I want the original intention I had in creation for man to be in the place of leadership and for the woman to be a support and the woman to be a complement to him. I want that order maintained in the assembly so that the silence of the woman is not a punishment. The silence of the woman is a return to God's original intention in divine order. Leadership in the man. He takes the lead and not the woman. When the woman took the lead, it led to problems. So we have creation order, Adam first, then Eve. We have the disorder that occurred in, in the fall, the reversal of order. Eve took the lead and Adam followed. Now he says the redemptive order I want maintained in the assembly is leadership in the male and support in the, on the part of the female, on the part of the sisters. So he is reinstating original intentions here in a local assembly. So if there is any place on earth that divine order should be maintained, certainly in the Christian family, but as well in a local assembly where the truth of God is, is valued and is appreciated. There, the need for consistency in action, the need for consistency in attitude, and he comes as well to the need for consistency in attire. Now, it's always touchy to deal with dress, but we have a, a special latitude now because uh, while this used to refer just to sisters, it can, can apply to brethren as well. So, uh, you know, pretty soon the men will be wearing earrings and nose rings as well as, you know, I mean, uh, anyway. But uh, so this is broad. This is both brethren and sisters when it comes to attire that I think we can, we can speak of here. Number one, why does he speak to us here about clothing and attire? Could I suggest at least two things? Number one, if you are praying for people, to value the spiritual above the material, what am I doing with my $2,000 Armani suit sitting in the assembly? Now, I'm not saying you have to go to Goodwill and buy your clothes. But I'm just saying, if I'm putting all the emphasis on material things in my life, how can I come and pray that unsafe people will realize that the spiritual is more important than the material? And if, as he deals with here, people putting all the attention on the outward, 
Speaking in, in chapter 2 there of, uh, as he says there, the women adorn themselves modest apparel. Now, just so we're clear here, that word modest really is the idea of becoming. So it doesn't mean you, you dress looking like you've, uh, you're you know, the original bag lady. Uh, you, you can dress attractively. You, you can dress becomingly. You can dress in matching. Everything can match. and be, be. But the idea is where's the emphasis? Is all my money going for material things? and Or is it that I'm recognizing the value of the spirit? So is it the spiritual or the material? And then he says, is it the external or is it the internal? Are you putting all your emphasis upon pearls and gold and all of that? Just, just to be seen, just to, to make a statement, or are you really recognizing the value of the inward versus the outward? So attire, the way we dress, sends a message. If we are putting all of our interest in the external, if we are putting all of our interest in the material, and we come and we're praying for the spiritual and the internal, there's a disconnect. Again, we're not speaking about the need to look slovenly. We should look nicely dressed. We should look respectfully dressed. But the idea is emphasis. Where is the emphasis being put? I sometimes, if I'm dealing with this relative to uh, the breaking of bread, the question I would ask to our sisters and to our brothers, do I spend more time picking out my wardrobe or getting ready spiritually for the meeting? That's a way of testing which is where the emphasis is. Do I spend more time fussing with my wardrobe and my appearance as compared to fussing with my spiritual condition and my preparation for remembering the Lord? You could say the same thing with the prayer meeting. Now, I know that has a little difficulty because many times we're all rushing home from work, rushing from dinner, and so on. But uh, you'll understand when I'm just putting the, where, I, where I'm at with this section, where the emphasis the Spirit of God is placing is upon the inward and upon the spiritual and recognizing the, the value of that and the tremendous consistency that gives. So that when our, when our sisters come in keeping with Second, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and they're nicely dressed, they're nicely adorned, but there's not the gaudiness, there's not the desire to draw attention to themselves, not the desire to make fashion statements when they come, and they come and they take their place in silence and in subjection. They are adding tremendous weight to the prayer of the men who rise to lead the assembly in prayer. They are adding consistency to the requests that are being made known in the presence of God. So. We need to know what is consistent with our prayer and our prayer meeting. Just quickly, hurriedly at the end here, just a word of encouragement as to why the delays. We pray and we pray, and either it doesn't happen or there's a delay. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said the, no, it was Sir Robert Anderson, who said the, the greatest trial we face as Christians is the silence of heaven. The greatest trial we face as Christians is the silence of heaven. We pray, we cry, we intercede, and heaven is silent. The difficulty of delays. And I would hardly for a moment stand up here and tell you that I have the answers. I can just give you some examples from Scripture. Number one, it furthers conformity to Christ. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Why was it that Hannah, year after year after year, prayed for a child, going up year by year, and the burden kept increasing? Well, there were at least two reasons. Number one is, she was made to recognize a rival who seemed to be winning. God had a rival in the nation who seemed to be winning. They were bowing down to idols. She was barren. 
The nation was barren. God was grieving over a barren nation. She was grieving over a barren womb. So that as she passes through that experience, she is learning the heart of God. She's learning what God is feeling. Until finally, she's not thinking of herself anymore. She's not thinking of her rival anymore. She's simply thinking of the nation. And she wants a child to give back to God, to be a blessing to the nation. It brought her into conformity to the very heart of God. But again, I think of, uh, I think of Paul. Think of Paul in prison, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Not now a matter of conformity. Not now a matter of furthering conformity, but testing confidence. Testing confidence. Paul is about to go out and die at the hands of an unrighteous judge. And Paul says, I'm looking forward to the day when the Lord, the righteous judge. And he says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. Paul, wait a minute. In a couple of days, Paul, you're going to lose your head. I mean, that's pretty evil, isn't it? That's nothing compared to my caving in and denying God at the end of life. I'd rather there are things that are better than losing your testimony. Could I say it's better to lose your head than lose your testimony? That's what Paul is saying. God will preserve me. I've got absolute confidence in God. So conformity, confidence, and when you think of men like Abraham and, and Samuel and others, it molded character in them as they prayed, as they waited for God. Samuel, that great man of prayer. Elijah, the great man of prayer. Created character. Character, conformity, confidence, all of that as a result of the delays of God. And so as assemblies, as we gather together, and as we pray, and as we struggle with the silence of heaven at times, as we know the will of God better, as we seek to come into the presence of God with genuine burden for the will of God, just to be absolutely confident, we come to a God who does not need to be persuaded. It's not that we are persuading Him to our way of thinking. He's actually bringing us to his way of thinking. And we see here the tremendous value of an assembly prayer meeting when the believers are gathered together, recognizing the command of God, knowing the character of God, appreciating the concerns of God, praying with consistency before God, having absolute confidence in our God, in our prayer life. Shall we pray?